Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. My name is Ian Marks, and I'm a contributing writer for American Cinematographer magazine. In this episode, I'll speak with cinematographer Jim Hawkinson about his work on the Amazon Studios adaptation of Philip K. Dick's novel, The Man in the High Castle. Set in a dark alternate reality where the Axis powers won the Second World War, Man in the High Castle tells the story of the resistance to this new order and of the uneasy alliance between the expanded Japanese empire on the west coast of the former United States and the new Nazi Reich on the east. Meanwhile, the discovery of a mysterious reel of film suggests the existence of a world where the outcome of the war, as our heroes know it, was very different. Jim, you shot both the pilot and part of the first season. Now, television pilots tend to get a bit more time and money and attention than a regular series episode. Is it the same with an online studio? Yeah, you generally you generally get about 30% more uh, time and resources. So if it's a 15-day pilot, then when it goes to series, it's going to be a 10-day. The same with, like, if it's a 12-day, then when it goes to series, it's going to be an 8-day. So it's, it's generally about... 30% more time, and I, and I suppose resources, uh, money, money that is. Of course, that, that can vary depending what it is. Um, this pilot we shot in Seattle, and we shot the pilot in 15 days. Did you have to be careful about the pilot writing checks that the series couldn't cash? Well, there was a couple like really large shots in the pilot, especially establishing New York City and establishing San Francisco. And, well, the New York City one was going to be a lot of visual effects when he comes out of the movie theater and we reveal this big neon swastika in the middle of Times Square. And that was all done in a massive parking lot. And and I just put up towers with with lights on them to replicate lights that would be coming off the neon and signs and storefronts and so forth. Certainly you do a shot like that. Uh, It was a 50-foot techno crane with 100 feet of track. And you know that you're not going to be doing that every week when it goes to series. The same is true with San Francisco when Juliana exits the dojo and and she's walking through the streets of San Francisco. And that shot, it was massive. It was a 50-foot techno crane shot with set extensions, visual effects. And we had probably 150 extras all in period clothes, period haircut, and, you know, maybe 50 vehicles cluttering the streets. And so certainly you do a shot like that and you know okay, this is, this is a big introductory shot to San Francisco, and we're not going to be doing that every week. Then, of course, there's things that are designed to go to series. Uh, for example, like Frank and Juliana's apartment in San Francisco. We knew a lot of scenes were going to take place there, so that was a build. And, and those were sets that we could uh, fold and hold and carry with us to wherever the production ended up. And the same with the Nazi consulate in San Francisco, no one in Seattle would give us permission to take over their building and put swastikas up and call it Nazi headquarters. <laughs> so, so there are, you know, a few sets that you build, you know, you're going to carry when you go into series. Did you already know while you were shooting the pilot that you would go to series? Uh, not 100%, but I knew the show had a lot of momentum behind it. And Ridley Scott had been developing this project for close to a decade, I believe, and one time he was going to make a feature film out of it, and they had been preparing to 
to produce this, this work for, for some time. Plus, the material is so rich in possibilities. You, you can't show everything in the pilot. You know, you just kind of inter- introduce this world, and then there's so much potential to explore. How did you come to be involved with the production? I spent three seasons on Hannibal, and I, I was the only cinematographer on that show. I didn't share it with another cinematographer. But um, there was a guest director named David Semmel who came in, and he really liked my style and Oh, that's so it was really through him. What did you and David want the show to look like? Retrofuturism. It's a past that's influenced by the future. I wanted it to feel like 1962, yet there's so much impossible technology and a whole different political structure than we had in, in reality in 1962. But I still wanted uh, something to be familiar aesthetically. So there was a lot of study of... Um, Ectochrome and different film stocks of that era. And we did a lot of testing to arrive at what the palette for the show should be. Which cameras and lenses did you use? The studio was mandating a a 4K capture, so that limited the choices of what camera systems we could use. But um, I ended up going with the red camera, the red dragon. And I, I felt that the chip was a bit more cinematic than the Sony option. So we went with that for the pilot and the first season. And the lenses, I went with the Master Primes just to um, have the ability to work at a 1.3 when I needed to. And then the fusions and things like that were, we tested many different options and arrived at kind of a combination of, of modern and vintage filters. This 4K mandate, did that preclude the use of cameras like the Alexa? Well, we've, we've since gone to the Alexa for season two and just up to 4K, which is preferable for me because I've had a lot more experience with that camera. But at the time, yeah, they did want a 4K capture. So it, it basically came down to the two choices of, you know, shoot with the, the Sony F55 or 65 or the RED. So now you could potentially shoot with any format. Originally, I wanted to shoot anamorphic. And ideally, 35 millimeter. You know, it's Philip K. Dick and really Scott producing. So immediately, I was thinking of Blade Runner and using that as kind of a departure point. But they didn't want to deliver in scope. And then I think that the whole shooting in Seattle and you know, there's no lab there. And I think to the producers, it felt not streamlined of a of a workflow. I understand that another mandate from Amazon uh, is to do HDR deliverables. Yeah, they're asking for an HDR delivery, and it is remarkable what it can do, but at the same time, it makes you work to limit your choices. I'm used to working in the Ansel Adams zone system of 0 to 10, and suddenly you're working in a zone system that's a 0 to 100. Do I really need all that shadow detail over there? I think it's better if I don't have that. Do I really need to see the filament on that light bulb? I'd rather have it blow out. So I find when I'm doing those HDR sessions, I'm crunching it all down to uh, match to our 4K delivery. The production and costume design is incredibly well-researched. In fact, there's a great Deadline interview with the cast about how immersive the production design is and how its authenticity actually impacts their performances. Did it also have an impact on the cinematography? That's for sure. And and I have a great collaboration with Drew, our production designer. He's definitely one of the, the top guys I've ever worked with. When you walk into these spaces and the world that is created, 
So it does make you feel a certain way. We feel one way when we walk into Walmart, and then we feel another way when we walk into some dark mansion or something. So absolutely, that's, that's going to have an influence on how things are approached aesthetically. My relationship with the production designer, too, can just be, you know, most of all the practical things that a cinematographer would need, obviously, windows, practicals, the sets that they're, they're building and the world that they've created is pretty phenomenal. And it goes back to the, the thing we were talking about, about limiting our choices, too, because we did try and come up with a very strict color palette that would give us that vintage, futuristic feeling. We try to avoid primary colors. So there's no true yellows, reds, or things like that. It's always a skewed a little bit. Well, if I were to describe the look of the show to someone, I, I think I would say it's a little bit like an old photograph. Well, that's great. That's Then, then I've done my job, if that's what you say. <laughs> Because that, that, that becomes a challenge when you don't control everything. I remember we, we got to the color green, and then what I said is like, well, what if I'm in a park? Obviously, we can't go and paint the lawn. So then you have to come up with uh, digital solutions. There's a darkness to the look of the show, particularly if you look at the way the faces are modeled and how there's not so much emphasis on filling in the shadows. Well, you know, it's a totalitarian world, and so... Big Brother is, is leaning over your shoulder and scrutinizing you all the time, and he's casting his shadow on your face. So basically, I want an, an oppressiveness to the, to the imagery. It is dark to the camera side. It goes back to, like, film noir, that post-World War II American cinema, where there's so much suspicion and espionage, and the cinematography of, of that time had that kind of mood as well. Is there anything in the book that describes the visual qualities of this world? You know, in the in the novel, there's Phil K. Dick like conceived like three different realities, and it's basically heaven, hell, and earth, to put it simply. And and the hell is living under Nazi and Japanese rule. I believe the earth would be what reality is, and then the heaven is is the ideal. At least that's what I've garnered from reading some of his essays about this material. And not to give any spoilers, but the show is opening up, and we will show you other worlds. And maybe in those other worlds, the sun will be a little stronger and the light will shine more on people's faces. The show also has this kind of gauzy, dreamlike look to it, and I wonder if that was your intention, to imply that this reality may be just one of many possible realities. Again, I think I've done my job if you're making that comment. <laughs> you said before that you used a combination of old and new filters. Can you tell us a little bit about those choices? Well, you know, filters are a tricky thing, and when you start stacking them all up, you can get weird aberrations, especially when you're pointing to, say, a bright window or something. All of a sudden, you start getting these double reflections and all that stuff. So there's a certain practicality to choosing a filter. And also... I would say just to take the curse off of the high-resolution capture and to limit your choices and limit what your audience is going to see. I mean, does your audience in HDR really need to see every pore of skin on, a, on an actor's face? For the pilot, did any particular uh, noir films inspire you and David or noir cinematographers like uh, John Alton or James Wong Howe? We looked at The Third Man, and, uh, and then there was also talk of expressionism because 
really film noir, I believe the seed of it really is in expressionism. So when you think of, you know, long shadows and, you know, shafts of light and that kind of stuff, my mind goes all the way back to F.W. Murnau. But I, I love Alton. The thing I love about his cinematography is, is how minimalistic he would be. And, you know, he might just set three lamps for a shot, but those three lamps are essential <laughs> and just crucial to the shot. And carry maximum effect. That's the idea. If you can do it with just setting one lamp, you've won. Especially, again, if it's expressive, it's supporting the, uh, the themes and, and you're telling the story and all that kind of stuff. What can you tell us about your collaboration with cinematographer uh, Gonzalo Amat? You shot the odd-numbered episodes in season one, and, and he shot the even ones. Well, I mean, obviously, we get to each prep with our guest directors. And then in terms of our collaboration, we talk about, you know, a lot of nuts and bolts kind of kind of stuff. Certainly, Gonzalo has a, a different style than me. He's a little more modern, maybe. But it all works, and the episodes can, can ebb and flow a little bit. But the show still has an established style that you have to adhere to. I like to keep a shot alive, and I, and I like a shot to evolve. For instance, you know, it's a group shot, and then two people step forward, the camera adjusts over, and then we land in a close-up. And so much of that depends on the blocking, of course. I think Spielberg is a master of, of that kind of stuff. Like, you watch, you watch a shot in a Spielberg film, and it, it just plays, and, and you feel like you've seen a wide, a medium, and a close all in one take. So certainly I think like that's, that's one of the rules is to just, you know, keep a cinematic formalism and rather than just shot collecting, like a lot of television can be. You shot the pilot in and around Seattle, but the show takes place in cities like San Francisco and New York. What were some of the challenges that you faced in, in making these transformations? Well, obviously, both Seattle and, and Vancouver, they offer certain streets that could definitely pass for New York City, as well as some hillier streets and some Victorian architecture that could pass for San Francisco. And then the whole Rocky Mountain things it, on the pilot, you know, we had to drive about an hour, hour and a half uh, inland to an old mining town. Did you do anything to photographically differentiate San Francisco from New York? For me to differentiate the two was kind of a happy accident. A lot of people, when they watch the pilot, they say, well, San Francisco has such a warm look to it, and, and then the East Coast feels a little colder. What happened was, when I did the, the big establishing shot of San Francisco, you know, where she comes out of the dojo, and we do that, that big move down the street, and we look, we look into the distance, I shot it right, right at sunset, like right as the the ball of the sun was hitting the water. And what was happening at that time was that apparently there were massive forest fires in Siberia. So the sun was going through all that atmosphere from these forest fires, and it was giving me this really warm and brassy look. And when I watched it, you know, it just, it really felt like Kodachrome or something. I was like, wow, you had this very warm light coming down one side of the street. Then as it adjusts to the other side, you have very cold shadows and in those cold shadows, there's neon signs that are, that are coming alive. So it, it just it had a wonderful palette just like within that one shot. And that kind of defined it for me. You know, it was like, okay, you know, San Francisco 
it has this warmer sun and it has more chroma. The frames are more cluttered. It's a little more active and uh, chaotic than um, than New York City's going to be. Did you do any color grading on set? You know, I'm I'm big on changing the uh, the Kelvin temperatures in the camera to experiment with different looks. And my DIT has a full DaVinci on set, and so a lot of times when I'm doing the color grade, I'm like, okay, freeze on this frame here. Let, let me see what I did on set, and that that always just reminds me of where my head was at on the day and what what direction I wanted to go with the thing. At which lab did you do your color grade? The guy who did the pilot was Mark Cooper at Technicolor in Toronto. Um, Regular season one, we went to Encore, and a guy named Thor was my colorist. What kinds of conversations are you having with the colorist while you're working on set? Well, the, the workflow is more dailies are coming from what I do on set. So the lab is not necessarily coding the dailies or they're matching the metadata from the set from that day. And then when it comes to final coloring, that's when I'm really communicating with, with these guys. And that's more just me being in the room with them and tweaking shot to shot. How often did you sit in on the grade? Well, it's, it's a luxury that, that I've always had, honestly. My mentor was Nestor Almendros, and he used to tell me that 30% of my job was with the lab. So even on Hannibal, when I was working five days a week, I would still do a colored timing session uh, on Saturday afternoon. Visually speaking, this is a pretty cutting-edge show. In the first season, I counted, I think, 10 visual effects supervisors, including a senior visual effects supervisor, Kurt Miller. Did you work with all of them or just Kurt? But we have a we have a new visual effects supervisor this this season, and he brought in uh, this end camera system, which is phenomenal because once their computer has scanned the set and has put their digital model onto it, you can look at your monitor or through the eyepiece and frame up for architecture or whatever they're going to put into the shot. You know, it's interesting what's happening in visual effects that you're going more and more into these virtual worlds. You know, back back when I was doing visual effects at Boss, it was much more analog. And you, there was no way to pre-visualize to the extent that they do nowadays. Can you give us an example? Well, I just did a shot the other day where we had five or six of those Nazi jets, you know, those massive rocket ships that the Nazis are flying around in. It was so great to know like how high the camera had to be to see the ones in the background or what lens to choose to get the nose of the plane and whatever was required by the shot. When we did the pilot and we did that rocket ship shot, what we did is we just, we just had scaffolding and tennis balls and we did it the old-fashioned way where you just, you just had reference markers. Like, well, how tall is the tail on this thing? Okay, let's, let's send a green tennis ball up 25 feet or whatever it is. You mentioned... Uh, wanting this vintage look for the show. And does that include the stylistic approach to visual effects? Well, a little bit, but I got to say that when we did that Times Square shot in the opening, there was no way that I could put green screen on that shot because it is going to encompass at least a football field worth of space. So with that shot in particular, the visual effects company had to do roto on everything. I think because of that roto work, and the way that all blended together, that it kind of gave the vibe of what you're talking about. A little bit more analog and a little bit more of an old school kind of 
kind of look to it. Is shooting a show for Amazon Studios uh, any different than shooting a show for network or cable television? Amazon seems to hire people and then just let them do their job and, and, and trust them. It's still a television schedule at times. I mean, there's still days where you, where you have to do seven pages or something like that. But what's liberating about shooting for a studio like Amazon is that all the execs are much younger, so they're more progressive in their thought patterns and more open to things. They understand what we're trying to communicate here and, and tend to, again, have a more progressive attitude towards it. That was cinematographer Jim Hawkinson talking about his work on the Amazon Studios series, The Man in the High Castle. Thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. 